0: Good morning. Our scripture this morning is short. It comes from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And so let's just take a moment, read it all together. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Amen. So these words are what Paul believes is the equation to a happy life. Rejoice. Pray. Give thanks. Continually. All the time. This is God's will. For us to have a grounded faith, to be, have a life grounded in faith, we need to have joy and prayer and gratitude. Now the founding members of the Congregational Church knew these words from St. Paul, and they lived by these words. They also just happened to be the second group of settlers in the New World after Jamestown. They were, of course, the pilgrims. And I'm going to tell you and talk to you a little bit about their story, but to remember this story respectfully, we need to bear in mind that there was a vibrant and intricate culture that existed on this land long before any Europeans ever arrived. It's estimated that there were around 10 million people already living here and thriving here on this land when that first ship landed in 1492. Today our government recognizes 574 federally uh, recognized tribes, but there were probably many other smaller bands that existed back in the 1600s. The Native American culture was, and still tries to be, one of living off of the land, of understanding that every living creature and every plant was a gift from God, the great Creator and was there for them to use, but not to abuse. In those times, and still in many indigenous cultures today, spiritual practices are the start of every day. And they are also exactly what St. Paul was talking about. Native Americans often begin every morning with a dance. Rejoice always. They sing morning songs of gratitude to the Creator, to the Son, and for all the bounty of their lands. Pray continually. And they understand and have a recognition of the fact that they are just visitors on this land, and that all belongs to God, and it was never their own to be owned. Give thanks in all circumstances. And as we know, the European culture marched itself westward and eventually displaced the Indigenous people from their lands, and led us to the difficult situation we live in today with the reservation, fraught with issues of one culture trying to be wiped out by another, poverty, hunger. And there's much to be said about all of that, but it's Thanksgiving Sunday. And so I'm asking you today to do something else. To go with me on a journey of the past, to hear the details of Plymouth Colony, direct from first-hand accounts, and through those I would like you to reframe Thanksgiving in a way that celebrates the intentions of that first Thanksgiving celebration. That without the friendship and the grace and the enormous generosity of the Native Americans those English religious refugees would not have survived. So let's begin. It's 1531. Henry VIII is King of England, a very devout Catholic, but a very questionable man. (laughs) Having tired of his wife, Catherine of Aragon, and having become enamored with the young Anne Boleyn, he asks his very good friend, Pope Clement, to let him have a divorce so he can marry Anne. The Pope says, no. Henry gets furious. He's going to show the Pope. He leaves the Catholic Church. He makes Catholicism in England against the law. He creates a new Protestant Church, calling it the Church of England, or what we know as the Episcopal Church. And he wanted his new church to be as similar to the Catholic Church as he could make it, but with one huge difference. Instead of the Pope having all the divine authority, King Henry himself and all the monarchs to follow would be the head of the church. As you can imagine, this didn't go over particularly well with some of the people. Especially within those hundred years... Catholicism was was illegal, then Bloody Mary made it legal, then others made it illegal, so the English went back and forth as to what religion is what. And within a hundred years, that same kind of corruption and control over faith and practice that had plagued the Catholic Church was rampant in the Church of England. People began to take action against the king and his church. Two of these groups were aptly named, the Puritans and the Separatists. And while the Puritans only wanted to purify the Church of England from the corruption, the separatists believed that couldn't be done. Reform would not be possible. So they separated themselves entirely from the Church of England. Of course, this didn't make King James very happy. If his people could defy him as their spiritual leader, they could possibly defy him as their political leader. So life in England became difficult for the separatists. It eventually became illegal to be a separatist. So they moved en masse to a freer and more tolerant place, to Holland. And it's there that they created churches that emphasized the Bible as the primary source of authority. They established the right and responsibility of each congregation to determine its own affairs. These two concepts led to shared shared leadership and to what is known as the Congregational Style, the organizational structure that we still maintain today in Southport Congregational Church. Jump ahead, 1609. Groups of these separatists have moved to Holland. They're allowed to worship freely. They love it there. They thrive for about 10 years until they notice something that they really don't like. Their children are becoming Dutch. Gone is the English accent, the English traditions, the English way of life. So they decide to leave and search for a place that they can have this religious autonomy and still be English. And they hear that back in England, there are companies who are paying people to relocate across the sea to America. And they decide to do that. Here they, they figure out they can be free from religious intolerance. Here they can worship God freely and let their lives be a testament to their faith. So they return to England on August 5th, 1620. They sail for Virginia on the ship the Mayflower. Only 44 of those 102 passengers were separatists, 19 men, 11 women, 14 children. The other passengers were just people who wanted to start over in a new land. And William Bradford, one of the community leaders on board the Mayflower, wrote this famous passage which gave the separatists their new name, the name that we know them by. He wrote, So we left that goodly and pleasant city, which had been our resting place for nearly twelve years, but we know we are pilgrims, and looked not much on those things, but lifted our eyes to the heavens, our dearest country, and quieted our spirits. They looked to God, the entity that they were most devoted to, and they found their peace. Now, I don't think that Bradley actually meant those words literally, that they found their peace on the Mayflower. The ship's log that tells us that besides the 102 humans, there were some hens, some goats, two dogs, and plenty of rats. Creaking timbers, flapping sails, rats scratching, hens clucking, children crying, sailors shouting orders, bilge water gurgling, people being seasick, sailors swearing. Noise was a constant companion for those people. And I don't believe there could have been much peace. One person wrote of their experience, there was not one single spot on the entire Mayflower ship where you could experience silence or a moment of solitude. And we can understand that, especially if we think about the size of the Mayflower. You ready? The Mayflower is 25 feet wide and 106 feet long. To give you the visual, our sanctuary is 50 feet wide. So if I stand here and go on one side, that's your 25 feet, 106 feet, happens to be the identical amount of space, and I really have to wonder if this is coincidental or not, from the back of that wall to the wall of the original church in Fellowship Hall, the wall of the kitchen. Keep in mind, 102 people, that gives each person the space, personal space, Relatively the exact same size of one of our vignettes at Rims of the View. That is coincidental. And yet the ship's log also tells us that every day 44 pilgrims, as they were now called, went out on deck, sang psalms, recited prayers, and rejoiced. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks all the time, in all situations. This is a testament of your faith. So for 66 days, the Mayflower sailed, and on November 11, 1620, they saw land. The journey had ended, and they were in Virginia. Surprise! Welcome to your new England. Then that would become Massachusetts. They dropped their sails off the coast, and some men took a small boat, and legend has it, when they stepped out of their boat, their feet landed on a glacial stone that they named Plymouth Rock. Now, my sister is a teacher in Massachusetts, and they take their second graders to Plymouth Park every year, and they show them the stone. Anyone seen it? It's like in a little thing, right? Like this big, says 1620 on it. They stand there, they tell the story of the pilgrims in that moment. And one little boy says, no wonder they all died. That stone is so small to live on for a winter. (laughs) Winter did come quickly upon those pilgrims, and they knew that they had to find a place to settle, and they hoped to find a place that they could build some shelter and get off the Mayflower. But the New England winter had other plans for them. Rain and icy winds and snows kept the passengers living below deck. Every day, though, when it was clear, some men went out to explore the land. And on one of these trips, while they were camping out on the shore, they heard a strange cry. They were frightened and confused, and so what did they do? They fired their guns randomly out into the woods in all directions. Early the next morning, they heard the cries again, but this time they could see, up on a hill, Indians standing in the distance. The Indians shot arrows and then left. Fortunately, no one was hurt in all of that, but the pilgrims retreated very quickly to the Mayflower. But a couple days later, after they'd garnered up their strength and courage again on December 9th, a small group of them had gone ashore. And they found abandoned cornfields, and a large forest with huge trees for building homes, and a number of freshwater streams. They had found their settlement, and like good Europeans, they planted a stick and said, this will be Plymouth Colony. So now remember, this is December, the year is almost over. There was no Thanksgiving feast with the Indians that year. As a matter of fact, the Pilgrims spent most of that winter on the Mayflower. The New England cold also took its toll, and many of them got very sick. By the time spring arrived, half the ship's passengers had died. Sometimes in the ship's log it says as many as three in a single day. So come spring, there were just 50 people who disembarked off of the Mayflower. But despite this, the struggling, hungry, scared pilgrims awoke every morning, praising God, singing psalms, and rejoicing, says the ship's log. They spent time every morning making their actions a testament of their faith. Now, at this point, the, the, uh, Bradford writes, their prayers were simple for food, and water, and shelter. And they were not prayers of colonization. Which might be why, on March 17, 1621, when an Indian warrior walked boldly and confidently into Plymouth Colony, they let him in without any resistance. And much to the surprise of the pilgrims, this Indian began to speak in an English dialect. They learned his name was Samoset. And he was a chief from the Wampanoag tribe in what would become Maine. He told them that he had learned some English from fishermen who came to fish off of Mohegan Island. And then the next thing he did was to ask for a beer, which the pilgrims proudly gave them. And I think that might just have been the first congregational church cocktail party. (laughs) They talked well into the night. He left the next morning with a few presents from the pilgrims and returned a day later with what Edward Winslow described as five tall, proper men with three-inch black stripes painted down the middle of their faces. Samoset told the pilgrims of another Indian named Tisquantum, who they, the pilgrims, nicknamed Squanto. But Tisquantum was a member of the Patuxet tribe of the Wampanoags. He had been captured as a young man along the main coast in 1605 by Captain George Weymouth, who took him to England, where he kept him for nine years. When he was allowed to return in 1614, he came back with someone whose name you might know, John Smith. But, unfortunately for Tisquantum, he was captured again sold into slavery this time in Spain. He escaped, walked into a monastery and was taken in by those monks who protected them. 5 years later, he left to go back to his home in Maine. But when he arrived there, he found that it had been wiped out by the smallpox epidemic, leaving him the sole survivor surviving Patuxet Indian. So he went to live with Samoset's Wamp- Wampanoag tribe. Now, go back to March 22nd, when Samoset brought Tisquantum to meet with the pilgrims. Tisquantum immediately knew that these people were sick, that they were dying, and that they needed help, or they would not survive. He looked around at their food stores. He knew that they did not have enough food to survive, and they definitely would not survive another winter and they hadn't even started planting crops. So when he finished his beer, and his assessment of the pilgrims, Tusquantum simply walked back into the woods, without a word. But hidden from the pilgrims' view was the great Wampanoag chief Massasoit, and 90 of his warriors. Tusquantum reported back to Massasoit what was happening, explained that the pilgrims were too weak, and too sick, and too helpless to pose any threat, and asked him to help them. Massasoit agreed. He went back with Tusquantum to Plymouth Colony. The colonists welcomed Chief Massasoit into one of their unfinished houses, and this time shared with Massasoit and Tusquantum some of their own homemade moonshine. You know where I'm going. The second Congregational Church <laughs> <laughs> cocktail party, and perhaps even the first progressive dinner. <laughs> Winslow reported afterward that Massasoit, quote, was a very lusty man in his best years, an able body, grave of countenance, and spare of speech. He wore deerskin shawls and leggings had covered his face with bug-repelling oil and reddish-purple dye. Around his neck hung a pouch of tobacco, a long knife, and a thick chain of the prized white shell beads called wampum. Now the pilgrims had barely survived the previous winter. They were haggard and weak, and Massasoit made a decision that these people only desired peace, survival, and perhaps a trading relationship. For his part, Winslow told Massasoit that he was sure that King James of England would see him as a friend and an ally, making Massasoit believe that he would have the powerful English as his ally. They agreed to a treaty, Massasoit invited a pilgrim delegation to meet him at his place, and Miles Standish and Isaac Allerton volunteered for the adventure. And when they went and arrived, Massasoit gave them nuts and tobacco as gifts, and the pilgrims gave him, not moonshine or beer, something better, a kettle of peas. On their second trip to visit Massasoit, they reaffirmed their peace with one another, and Massasoit agreed to send to Squantum to help the pilgrims learn to farm, how to hunt in these woods how to fish for cod and bass, how to dig clams, and how to catch lobster. And it is true that in thanks for his help that fall, the Pilgrims invited Tisquantum and Chief Massasoit to come to Plymouth Colony to enjoy a meal and to show off and to share all that they had learned from the Native Americans. But it wasn't quite the bountiful table that you see in the pictures. Edward Winslow again wrote, our wheat did prove well, and God be praised, we had a good increase of Indian corn. Our barley, indifferently good, but our peas, not worth gathering. Some of the men were thus employed in affairs abroad, but others were here exercising and fishing about cod and bass and other fish, of which they took good store, and of which each family had their portion. All the summer there was no want, and now began to come and store the waterfowl, which as winter approached, the place did abound. We all know that, right? And besides waterfowl, there was great store of wild turkeys, of which they took many, and besides them, venison. We had about a peck of meal a week to a person, or now, since harvest, Indian corn to that same proportion. We began to gather in the small harvest we had, and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being well recovered in health and strength, and had all things in good plenty." Our harvest, being gotten in, our governor invited the Indians to come to share a meal so we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. Many of the Indians coming amongst us, and the rest with their greatest king, Massasoit, some ninety men, with whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And the Indians went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed upon our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want. The first Thanksgiving celebration. It was a harvest meal, a time of literally giving thanks to God and to the Native Americans, giving thanks for their successful pilgrimage on the Mayflower, thanks for the friendship and help from the Wampanoag, thanks for the harvest, which they believed God had given to them to show how pleased God was with them. And they gave thanks for their survival. It was a celebration they wanted to share with the people who had made it possible. This beautiful narrative of the first Thanksgiving is a story of gratitude, of friendship, of humility, of generosity, of compassion, of unity, and of grace. And sitting here today, we know this story didn't end that well. And A lot of that had to do with the influx of the Puritans into the New World, who were never fans of the Native Americans. But our lesson for now is that we need to continue to see what they saw. We need to continue to see what can be done when we see the needs of one another and help. When we listen to the ideas and traditions of one another with open hearts and minds, accepting them, not trying to change them, and learning from them. When we look at what can be done when we spend our lives rejoicing in all that we have and in sharing with others when we can. When we pray for one another, not just on Sundays, but on a daily basis, holding our friends and our perceived enemies in the same light of love, When we accept that each of us is on a personal pilgrimage of faith, a journey marked by unique experiences, challenges, and moments of divine connection. When we stop and thank God for those moments of divine grace in our lives, when we have blessings we cannot explain. And when we stop and thank God when things are tough and painful for reasons we cannot explain. Being able to be grateful in all things, like those Mayflower Voyagers, like those starving pilgrims, like those 50 survivors who mourned the deaths of their loved ones. When we can be grateful amidst all of that, that stands as a testament of the transformative power of faith. So when we choose joy even in times of sorrow, when we choose to accept help when we need it rather than push people away. When we see individuals rather than groups of people, that stands as a testament of the transformative power of our faith. And when we choose tolerance over bigotry, love over hate, community over separateness, that stands as a testament of the transformative power of our faith. And we choose to use our words for prayer instead of insults, when we choose to use our humility rather than our egos, that stands as a testament of the transformative power of our faith. So this Thanksgiving, may you rejoice fully, pray earnestly, and offer up gratitude freely as often as you can so that your life stands as a testament of the transformative power of your faith and so that you too may receive the full benefits of being pilgrims of faith. Happy Thanksgiving. Amen.